1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Maurice O'Keefe. The story of Smith & Pearson Limited is the fifth in a series of seven old Dublin family businesses. And this story all started at the beginning of the last century, when Smith and Pearson started manufacturing and exporting agricultural high-quality ironwork. And this was exported to the colonies and to South America. And then they expanded into structural steelwork. And to find out more about this fascinating story, I met Irwin Pearson at the Architectural Archives in Marion Square. I'm here in the uh, Architectural Archives, Marion Square, and I'm with Erwin Pearson. And we're here because your, family, your family's papers are all here in the archives.
2: Uh, yes, um, and I'm um, looking through the first ones. Um, this, this, for example, is the Jubilee Dinner. The Jubilee Dinner, which what was in uh, 1951. Celebrating 50 years, and I see it was in the Gresham Hotel, uh, uh, there's an invitation uh, to it, uh, invitations and uh, copies of acceptances from many of the working men. Look at the standard of their writing, just by the working men and the foreman, uh, you can't. You just don't see writing that is beautiful like that today. Uh, I haven't read this for a long time. Um, he's presiding over the Golden Jubilee celebration of Smith and Pearson with mixed feelings. Uppermost is his feeling of pride and satisfaction that it has fallen to him to occupy the position of chairman and managing director in the fiftieth uh, year of Smith and Pearson existence. At the time when I may claim the company is firmly established, uh, is well and favorably known, and occupies an important place in Irish industry. He goes on to uh, describe how the company uh, grew um, and... um, He says my father came to Ireland as a young man about 1875. Like so many others in those times, he came to Dublin to establish a sales branch in Ireland on behalf of an English manufacturer, Hill and Smith, of Briley Hill, Staffordshire, who were engaged chiefly in the manufacture of hay barns, gates and fencing. He opened showrooms and offices in 47 Dawson Street, Dublin. He soon realized that commercially Ireland and especially Dublin was at that period almost entirely in the hands of importing agents who sent their profits out of the country and who gave very little employment. He realized the resultant harm to the country as a whole. Mm. He took this up with his employer, uh, Joseph Smith, uh, uh, and told him of his determination to, to start manufacturing in Ireland. Um, inf- Mr. Smith uh, informed my father that he was a foolish young man and didn't know when to let well off. <laughs> um, however, he then backed him uh, in, um, and joined the board as a director, probably to keep an eye on his debentures. Um, and Thus, uh, in 1901, Smith & Pearson was formed. Smith & Pearson, Dublin.
1: Smith & Pearson, where where were they situated?
2: They were situated in Osery Road, um, just beside the Great Northern Railway line. Uh, he, bought, he got the land there very cheaply. It had been used as the sleeper, the, the wooden sleeper, Store for the Great Northern Railway, Dublin, Belfast.
1: Your father, at the time, then we come into World War One, and was he involved? Or did uh,
2: well, before World War One, <coughs> um, the company uh, uh, under uh, John Biglands Pearson um, developed. Uh, they became crown agents to the colonies, and they made metal fencing. Which was invaluable in South America uh, and in the uh, British Empire, uh, because wooden f- uh, fences to uh, p- keep in the, the stock <clears throat> only lasted for a couple of years when termites finished it off. So metal fencing was like gold dust, and they exported. Uh, they exported. Uh, Fencing and um, buildings, uh, agricultural buildings, um, to the UK where they had offices in every major centre, uh, uh, South America, uh, India, and elsewhere, uh, and the business did very well. Obviously,
1: so they were. They were yes. They, they, the business was growing rapidly, and implied yes, uh, yeah. and many Dublin people I would imagine
2: uh, oh yes oh oh yes they did yes at that
1: stage it was a good product selling to to a lot of,
2: of the homes
1: at that time
2: yes an exceptionally off uh, uh, I, I would say very difficult times uh, very hard times up to 1939 and unfortunately then practically disaster because Ireland remained neutral uh, england wasn 't going to sell steel to the Southern Irish uh, when they needed every bit of it themselves um, and there was just no work in the dublin factory
1: Wait, was it always uh, uh, was it going to happen that you were going to fall into the business anyway
2: I suppose so, yes, yes. I came back um, rightly or wrongly uh, i went to the business, there was a firm condition in the business uh, that if you were going to uh, go into it, you had got to work in the factory. You were not allowed to go straight into the office. Uh, You had to work in the factory for a year or two, and when you knew the business, uh, hands-on and uh, uh, that way, uh, then you might be allowed to come into the office. So I was, I suppose, a year or two in the factory. Making um, steel windows, actually. Okay,
1: and in in the 1950s, in, in yep. Dublin at the time... The
2: yes, it was working hammers and tongs. They couldn't keep up. You couldn't buy a window f- practically in Southern Ireland except from Smith & Pearson. Uh, f- at that stage, there were several years you could not buy a steel window and I don't think you could buy get a steel structure put up um, uh, by anyone, practically, except Smith & Pearson. So Smith & Pearson had free, under trade protection as well, had free range for a huge amount of the ESB work, um, for Goulding's fertilizers, for Guinness Brewery, for all the major companies. Smith & Pearson were practically the only source of structural steel uh, for all the houses that were then being built in Different parts of the country and
1: how did you how did the company manage to 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 secure the, the market and 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 have it all for themselves
2: um, si- simply um, I think by being able to turn out the stuff being able to turn out the windows uh, there was no other source for them if you wanted a, the wooden windows that were available at the time were absolute rubbish. They really only lasted about two years before they rotted. The timber was totally unprotected and uh, timber was not available from far east or from the uh, Asia or places like that. It it was, I I think, Irish timber that was taken from the trees, made into wooden windows and put into houses. Um, um, within weeks or months, and lasted weeks or months. <laughs>
1: but, uh, of course, we have to, to, to... This is all pre-plastic. Yes, yes. And, uh, oh, yes. So it, was, it, 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 it seemed to be the way to go.
2: And well, I, was, I worked in, in the factory, um, and I then uh, managed to get myself into the office, um, and I became a draftsman, yeah. uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, because everything had to be done by hand uh, structural steel all had to be drawn very accurately and then the measurements of the structural steel had to be laid out in big template lofts chalked on the floor so as you could get the correct joints full size and the the men and the workers would have a look and see what was wanted from the full size Drawings on the or sketches on the floor in chalk, and then the bits and pieces were made. So
1: was, who was the, the CEO of the company at the
2: time? At the time, uh, my father was the managing director. Now, my father was not an engineer, uh, but he was an officer, and he knew two and two made four. And he ran the company under Quaker principles, uh, largely on the basis of. Giving uh, employment, mm. uh, g- making a profit was not not uh, correct. Was not good practice, and as it was under trade protection, still existed. Okay. So,
1: so but uh, just yeah. while you're talking about the the workforce, yes. and, and the, the the Quaker ethos was yes. to make sure that the the worker was uh, had, uh, you know. A good sense of well-being, uh, and uh, g- can you describe that to me a little yes, bit? Yes,
2: yes. Yeah. Things were very difficult f- for poor people, or working people in Dublin and Ireland, were extremely difficult socially, particularly for the female end. Should a young lady who might have been brilliant at typing, which everything had to be typed and copied in those days, um, should they? get married, uh, either to a member of the staff, which quite frequently happened, or to somebody else. Uh, They were given about three months before they were told their position was no longer open. They were fired. After three months, on the premise, uh, if they weren't pregnant, well, they ought to be. And they they were let go, just like that. Oh, it's a very and story. another another seventeen or eighteen year old uh, lady was employed. It was also tough. A, a good draftsman now I think of several I met at the time or knew at the time and got to know if they, if they were Catholic uh, and the company did not dis- did not discern at all on religious grounds when they employed people. Uh, they were Catholic, all Protestants were taken on, and you weren't asked your religion. Though in those days it was quite plain from day one, or the first hour or so. But um, uh, if they happened to marry a, a person from a different religion, whether they were Protestant or Catholic, they almost inevitably had to leave Dublin. They couldn't really carry on living in Dublin, because their families wouldn't put up with it. And so, they, you got a good draftsman who uh, uh, would fall in love and get married to another person from a different religion. They then had to move out and go to the UK. And I think, uh, on the whole, it has to be admitted, if you were Protestant, you had an advantage, quite a distinct advantage. And
1: what, what gave you that advantage? What? The fact that you were Protestant.
2: Um, well, if if you were Protestant, I think you had you you didn't have the the um the the discipline that had to be imposed if you were a catholic um under the church and you didn't talk about it but the the discipline that had to be inferred um and the practices at the time were very hard on on young people growing up um very hard yeah. And I think my father's policy was, in quite a number of cases, some of the draftsmen had previously been uh, uh, starting to... had been put into religious orders by their families, whether they really liked it or not, and um, had suffered as a result. And they would get a job in Smith & Pearson um, and... um, um, they were they were much better off, but uh, a lot of them had awful um, internal injuries, you might say, or mental injuries as a result, which are still talked about today. Okay. And um, I certainly don't want to enter into that end of no. The conversation.
1: But was your father a very strict uh, uh, leader of that company? Um, uh, you know, did he set down rules that you had to be there on the dot? You know, you had to come in on time. Oh, yes.
2: Oh, yes. That that would have been very much so. Very much so. Uh, and if you were late for work a couple of days, I mean, you would get sacked. Timing was perfect, wasn't it? By because yes. Dublin yes. was
1: yep. just beginning to expand. Yes. And yes. did you And other, I'm sure, other uh, commissioning work came in, did it?
2: Well, uh, first of all, on steel windows, uh, what gave a great boost to the steel windows... Um, were the sanatoria uh, the steel windows used in galway uh, limerick cork and dublin sanatoria mm. they were they were huge contracts uh, both for the builders and for ourselves and um, at that stage i i think i was still uh, i might have been 20 years old or so but um uh, and I was working for Fred Anderson, the boss of the steel window company, and I hadn't started aluminium, I was sent down to meet the managing director of John Sisk's, who at that stage uh, was um, uh, Mr. Sisk himself, who was an elderly man, and I met him at his office uh, in Cork, uh, he was sitting in an armchair in front of a coal fire and I sat down opposite him and he asked me about myself and then he said, this is a very important contract for my company um, and if you you falter or delay he said, I have the cost of it, which far exceeds any cost you'll have and I always recollect he said, don't ever let me down (laughs) I may say, Smith and Pearson worked for John Sis for 30 or 40 years. Most of the contracts we had never had anything in writing. They had an understanding across across a a boardroom table or across a a dining room table. And sometimes they were on a napkin or sometimes they might have been on a bit of paper. But most of the contracts we did and that grew to over a million pounds a year, were done on understanding across the table and undertaking. Uh, A lot of it would have been done and came in for criticism because it would have been done across the lunch table, maybe at the Gresham Hotel or the Imperial in Cork, but you never, ever... Uh, welched or faltered on what you agreed across the lunch table. So there was a lot of trust. (laughs) Total trust. And most of the big building companies uh, in the 50s were family-owned, right up to the present day, uh, were family-owned. And um, there was a good deal of almost a friendship. Um, As the aluminium business grew... um, architects realised they couldn't uh, they they didn't know anything about aluminium or engineering so they tended to come and discuss the engineering end of the facades or windows with uh, Smith and Pearson or myself included um, at a very early stage before the builder was even considered now Um, A big boost, for example, was uh, the television studios, Michael Scott and Ronald Tallon. Uh, Ronnie Tallon uh, and Robin Walker had only uh, just formed an association with Michael Scott in Merion Square, and um, we thought the best thing for them, uh, they wished to follow the American architecture, Mies van der Rohe's principles of architecture for the television studios which was to be built in 15 months or 18 months and get on with it and um, we took them on a a week or so's trip to Germany and they met the the extrusion people for aluminium in Germany and they saw uh, different buildings and what could be done And as a result, they evolved the design, the glass and aluminium facades for the television studios. Oh, Um, indeed, yeah. That was quite a big step forward. I think it was one of the first buildings uh, um, with the serious use. Uh, I should say the difference between steel and aluminium in construction, principally, was steel sections uh, which melts at eight or nine hundred degrees can only be rolled and is rolled red hot. So you have simple shapes like angles and uh, beams um, and flats and T-sections. Aluminium melts or gets soft when it's five to six hundred degrees and can be squeezed through a die with great force. So you have Freedom of design for your section so you can make a complicated uh, H section or different types of sections of that uh, um, up to about eight or nine inches or whatever it is uh, in diameter um, and you have freedom of design
1: so this would have become the the, the more preferred uh, uh, item uh, more say preferred. Uh, Way of constructing uh, a building because you've more freedom to work Uh, with.
2: Especially from an architectural point of view, they had complete freedom where they'd never had it before. Um, But it needed a teamwork uh, in the building between the architect, the professional engineers, uh, the design image, uh, the window manufacturers, and the builders. We all had to team together. The Bank of Ireland. it had a new governor, Don Carroll from Dundalk, who had realized the Bank of Ireland and the banks generally needed upgrading in South in Ireland. And um, he and Robin Lewis Crosby, the chief auditor of the Bank of Ireland, had a talk with David Rockefeller of the Chase Manhattan Bank uh, in New York. Um, David Rockefeller came over to Dublin and had a look at the Bank of Ireland and was proudly shown uh, Dame Street by uh, Don Carroll as the Bank of Ireland, which had previously been the, the, pri- the Parliament of Southern Ireland Don Carroll looked at it, um, I understand this, and said, this is a museum, it's not a bank. How could you possibly run a modern bank in a premises of this description? Don Carroll took this to heart, and one of the directors of the Bank of Ireland was John Guinness of Guinness and Marne, very reputable indeed at that time, and um, Guinness and Marne were building a development, uh, quite a large development, in Bagot Street. And um, it became suggested that this building should be considered as a possibility for a new headquarters for the Bank of Ireland. Um, The long and short of it was that uh, Don Carroll or the board of the court of the, uh, the Bank of Ireland approached Ronnie Tallon of Scott Tallon Walkers to say they wanted a new building in Baggot Street of international repute. And uh, I could say that uh, Smith & Pearson uh, already had the order for the aluminium windows for the Guinness and Mound project. Um, I don't think I'm telling tales when I say that Ronnie Tallon asked me one evening at eight or nine o'clock would I go to his house uh, and have a talk about a project he had and he told me exactly um, what he'd be his brief to build put up a building of international repute um he knew i traveled in america a lot because of our association with the general bronze corporation and that we had that and we designed the facade for the bank of ireland in bagger street and uh we uh, got the order for that. I think it was the biggest order. It was a pretty big order. It was over a million pounds, which was big money in those days. And um, we got the order for the Bank of Ireland, uh, the first section, and then the other sections followed. But um, uh, it was a very interesting project and it worked very satisfactorily.
1: Oh, very exciting so, times, too. They, they've indeed.
2: reused it. In the last year or two. There's a letter, I think, from myself to the Irish Times on one occasion, the only time I ever wrote a letter. What did you write about? Um, We had completed the bronze cladding for the Bank of Ireland contract in Bagot Street. It was... One of the most prominent buildings in the British Isles at the time, and one of the very few completed in in bronze cladding, (coughs) manganese bronze cladding, when the building was finished, it was one of the first uh, up-to-date or modern construction buildings, Mies van der Rohe style in Dublin, and it came in for immediate public criticism by everyone concerned – uh, as rather in our our, our typical Irish fashion. Um, and what and was the
1: criticism?
2: The criticism was uh, the building didn't wasn't made from Georgian bricks, in, and it was in Dublin, and it should have been made from Georgian bricks, uh, which were unobtainable. Anyway, because the original Georgian bricks were all made by hand. And at the time that building was done, you couldn't buy handmade bricks in quantity in Ireland. Anyway, um, the building was done in glass and in bronze. And um, I (coughs) wrote a letter to the paper pointing out that this was new construction, new designed, new profiles of bronze all designed by the architects and then manufactured by Smith & Pearson to form a wall cladding. And that as a result of that work, we had received inquiries from London and from the United Kingdom and from different parts of Europe as a result of that building. And I pointed out that unless we got challenged to do new types of construction and use our ingenuity, we would just be stuck with doing following exactly what the United Kingdom had already done, or somebody else had already done before us. I see. This gave us a chance to break away from that, and we had done so successfully.
1: But all all the way through the the 60s into the 70s, things were going very well. But but, were you... did things start
2: going wrong? Um, um, my father died in died in 1963, and effectively had been unwell for the couple of years before it. Um, the company had grown uh, very well and very solidly, but purely based on no business background, and had based. Uh, Capital requirements were supplied by the bank, mm-hmm. so the commitment to the bank got bigger and bigger. The profits were okay on paper, but the commitment to the bank got were bigger and bigger. And after discussion, uh, my father thought the company ought to become a public company and uh, use its use its sale use that background. Uh, he went to discuss this with, actually, Guinness and Mann, who advised him to wait for another two years and produce two more years of very good, profitable accounts. And this was done, during which my father died. Um, in the intervening period, I can't remember which year, trade uh, protection had been abolished very sensibly and Ireland had starting to come into the present age uh, business wise a lot of businesses are no longer with us as a result because um, they were mismanaged mostly by families second third generation families this applied to Smith and Pearson Um, there was no financial plan we worked and work to get more work.
1: So you saw the light, and you thought, well, we're not going to keep going with this. Yes.
2: Um, One way, the man, the... uh, I can't remember the name of the chap from Pricewaterhouse, but um, uh, he he got working quite well with the company. Um, I think he would have liked to have had um, more responsibility, um, except that... um, It was not permitted as an auditor for that to happen, and so he had to appoint a new managing director. But the managing director was appointed very quickly, uh, and he turned out to be unsuccessful, and it was not altogether his own fault. The workers were used to working for a family. They knew the family. Um, They were used to being told truthfully, the situation and uh, if there was certain problems they had, the family would listen. Anyhow, that, of course, all ended. The workers did not like the new management, and the new management didn't like the way we did business, including myself. And they were right, because uh, I've explained, we often didn't have a written contract for some of the work. We had a, a verbal undertaking and um so um after a while this guy uh, my brother still was chairman of the company as was my uh, yes he was chairman of the company and jo- joint managing director with my cousin and um, this guy uh, and the the finance was backed by the 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 Bank of No Return, who I can't remember. I can't remember the name of it. It was in Harcourt Street. Okay. Um, but they provided finance for risky companies that had a lot of employees uh, to try and get them back on the road to recovery, which... Uh, anyway, um, that, that manager of Smith & Pearson, um, oh, yes, he... Uh, found he could not run the company with the chairman in position, family chairman in position, and a new chairman was then appointed by the the bank, the bank of no return, I can't remember the name. Uh, A new chairman was appointed, who also proved to be, in, in, in all fairness, a bit of a misfit, uh, very politically implicated, of course. Very good salary went in and all the rest of it. And um, so the previous chairman were all fired and all the rest of it. Um, however, this did not solve the basic problem yeah. that the, the soul had gone out of the company mm-hmm. and um, um, eventually uh, the new chairman then had a disagreement with the managing director that had been appointed, and he was disposed of, and another managing director was appointed. And um, he uh, he lasted a year or two, um, and the bank saw continuing working losses, and so the company, one day, the chairman, the new chairman, um, decided without even asking the board to put the place into receivership, which he did.
1: Oh. And I mean, was there any strike by the way I had
2: resigned my own... I had become a director of the company uh, because I was handling a good hunk of the turnover and so... Uh, when the company went public and things, I think it was around that time, I, I, was, I had no particular wish to become a director, I may say. Uh, I was more interested in the functioning of the thing. And um, anyway, I had retired my directorship um, when the company got into financial director. Awesome. I'd retired my f- um, directorship, but I'd kept my position in the company because it was still, still a very possibly... Profitable business Mm -hmm. if it was properly managed and by people who knew the work and who had the trust of architects and builders. But all that died all that died when when, when, uh, new management took over yes all that
1: died. But how did the workers react? Did they strike at any
2: stage? No the work wasn't all that plentiful and I think there was probably a a time of recession of work work wasn't all that plentiful. Those that could got out, those that could got out and formed their own companies and that sort of little companies and things and um, 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 and Eventually, um, I was actually in Limerick one day, uh, d- down there, uh, on a contract of some description, and uh, I listened to the radio in the morning, which said that the company had gone into receivership. Uh, nobody had bothered to tell anyone, and um, so um, I, I then left. Um, and I started my own company, um, but that's another story it's been an incredible story oh, <laughs> absolutely uh, that's only and a, thank that's you only so main. one side of it okay <laughs> but thank you thank you for taking me to the Brons, stage. smith and pearson became uh, connected with the uh, nippon light metal company in japan and um, we associate we combined with unidaire a company called unidaire uh, to make a, 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 a anodizing factory which colors aluminium and coats it. And that's why, uh, yeah. and coats it. And we had a, a, a subsidiary company with Unidair for coating it. And Unidair uh, uh, set up to extrude aluminium in Ireland. So we were able to have the Irish extrusions and then coated. And we were t- totally self-sufficient. So, so you um,
1: you were a flagship here in so, this country for oh, uh, yes I think producing so.
2: yes I think so and, this um, product yes and um, uh, I suppose all of us uh, oh yes the colouring company made an agreement with the Nippon Light Metal Company in Japan for the colouring of aluminium because there was a big legal battle on between the two American yeah. providers of aluminium. Alcan and Alcoa, and we were afraid we'd get mixed up in the legal battle if we used one of their processes. So we had to make a process using Japanese patents. So So, all of that involved um, weekly rather than monthly visits to America and pretty frequent visits at certain stages to Japan so I spent a good deal of time in the air you
1: did <laughs> <Then>. indeed <laughs> I, I must call again so, and, and uh, I appreciate this thank you so, uh. well you've been listening to Irwin Pearson tell the story of his family's business if you enjoyed listening to this interview uh, you can access the full recording and that's available on our website that's www.irishlifeandlore.com Here's a sample of next week's business story.
2: Well, I, I was um, born on a farm in North County Dublin, Noxodan, Swords. Um, my father and his two uncles were the um, owners of the business. Uh, the business was started by my grandfather, um, Oh, great-grandfather, actually, in, South, in Sycamore Alley in Dublin. What was his name? His name was Joshua Bewley uh, in in the 1840s.
1: The story of Bewley's hospitality business in Dublin. I'm Maurice O'Keefe, and I look forward to bringing you that podcast next week.
0: Hold up.